Welcome to the Ars Equi Podcast, a series of discussions between legal researchers and experts on all things related to law and technology. And now, here are your podcast hosts. Hi, I'm Tima. And Hi, welcome. I'm Paul. And welcome to an, another episode of the Ars Equi podcast. Today we're doing a special episode because, as you may or may not know, in the past few weeks, Nigerian youths all over the world have taken to the streets as part of the NSARS movement, protesting against police brutality, corruption, crimes against humanity, and bad government. So this weekend is actually an international call to action where and SARS protests will be taking place all over the world. So as a Nigerian youth myself, Paul and I thought that it would be important for us to use our platform to take part in this protest. So that's what we're gonna do here today. Yeah, and for this, we have chosen a bit of a different format than usual. So on the one hand, we are not just here by voice, but you can also see our faces. On the other hand, we're doing this live uh, on YouTube. Maybe some of you are watching it right now. Plus, uh, we have two special guests with us today that are uh, experts in um, and, and could bring us more, more information on, on the protest and about the legal aspects of this. Uh, on the one hand, we have Benga, who is a journalist from Nigeria. He's a news anchor at News Central at TV Nigeria. Welcome, Benga, for, and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much and for having me, Paul. And we have Astrid with us today. Uh, who is a researcher at the Department of European, International and Comparative Law at the University of Vienna. And she's an expert in international law and especially international criminal law. Thank you for joining us too. Thanks for the invitation. So for those of us, for those of you who are watching and listening who might not know what the end SARS movement is or have no idea what's going on in Nigeria and why it's so important, I think we should start there. So Benga, could you explain to everyone what this movement is about, how it started and why it's so important? Okay, um, SARS is an acronym for the abbreviation for Special Anti-Robbery Squad. It was uh, created by the Nigerian government under the military ruler of Ibrahim Babangida. In 1992, it was established uh, to fight violent crimes and go after armed robberies. But since then, it has metamorphosized into, um, I mean, Amnesty International has documented their atrocities well. So they've been reports of extrajudicial killings, extortion, uh, violence, against uh, ordinary citizens and um, that's why uh, people young nigerians said enough is enough they've raised um, issues against sars in the past and then the government comes and say you know we've dissolved sars uh, sars doesn't exist anymore and a few months down the line when people move on uh, they're back on the streets but this time around it's very different because i mean it's a global phenomenon the hashtag NSAS was went, went viral, it was trending uh, worldwide and it brought the attention of uh, major international players and uh, also celebrities to, you know, to bring to the attention of the world uh, the atrocities committed by um, NSAS in order to end police brutality in Nigeria. So that's why the people are protesting and the scores of um, testimonies that people have given ordinary Nigerians of the experiences uh, in the hands of SARS. And it's not 
very palatable most times. Mm. I think for me, the NSARS movement is so important because firstly, it's a youth-led movement. And I think as a young Nigerian, it's really, it's amazing to see young people really standing up and saying enough is enough. We're not going to have this anymore. We want a Nigeria where we can feel safe and the people who are in place to protect us also make us feel safe. But I also feel like this movement has brought uh, light on policing in Nigeria. And SARS is kind of a microcosm of policing overall in Nigeria and dare I say possibly the continent as a whole. And in doing some research, I found that um, several reports show that the average Nigerian police makes about $4 a day and about $1,700 a year. So do you feel like um, the underserved nature and the underpaid nature of the police in general has anything to do with why we see these issues that we do with SARS? Absolutely. Um, it does. And it's not just the Nigerian police force. It's the whole, it's the, there's a criminal maladministration in the whole system of how things run in Nigeria. I mean, doing a job of a policeman is a high-risk job mm. uh, in itself. And um, a lot of policemen uh, have to buy the uniforms themselves. They just have to make money by any means necessary because they're not paid enough uh, for the kind of work they do. They aren't just paid enough. Uh, so you have a situation where the ordinary citizens feel the brunt of their uh, low wages. They tend to extort all the time. They go around in buses. They pick up uh, young men uh, with dreadlocks. Uh, there's a whole profiling of young uh, Nigerians, and then they're often the victims of SARS. So it's not just a SARS problem, it has to do with the whole uh, structure of the Nigerian police force, the training, uh, civil and um, police and civilian relations, the police, um, the police doesn't even remember that they're there to protect and serve the people. It's almost, uh, it's almost a master and slave uh, relationship. And the whole SARS process is about reforming the Nigerian police. You know, it's better for the policemen in the long run. They're not fighting with the policemen. They're just saying, look, stop killing us, stop extorting us. We understand the issues uh, at hand. Let us um, address it once and for all. Address the housing situation of the policemen. Address the tools they need to um, do their works properly. And of course, uh, their wages and these are some of the things in the front burners of in the front burner of the conversation on NSAS is about reforming the entire Nigerian police force. Mm. And Paul and I, oh yeah, Paul, were you going to say something? Sorry. Yeah, um, a thought that I had and and what I found confusing when I when I read about this was that police brutality in other countries, for example, in the U.S., because this is uh, where this also uh, discussed at the moment, uh, has all of these uh, racist motives, xenophobic mo motives. Um, but these um, don't seem to be, like you describe it, don't seem to be the major driver here in Nigeria, but it sounds like a social issue, more or less. Yeah, it's a, I mean, there are multiple layers to it. It's a social issue. And of course, I mean, the name Nigerian police force, people don't even use force anymore. So it's faulty. It should be the Nigerian police services because you're there to protect and serve. It's not a force. A force is a trained army unit that is meant to, you know, use violence to carry out its um, programs. So 
the Nigerian police force, I think there are multiple layers to why they behave the way they are. Uh, number one, it's a hangover of colonialism. They were used by the British to, you know, to make the Nigerians pre-independence stay in line, you know, to enforce their will by force. Yes. And then there's the other side, the social part of it. Uh, they have the top hierarchy. So the corruption in the Nigerian police force is top to bottom. They are not earning well and they have targets. So the divisional police officer sends them on raids. Mm -hmm. So you just create roadblocks on the highways uh, to do random stop and search. And then you find sometimes they plant um, stuff in people's cars. So they have to, it's just, it's a survival uh, thing. They have to survive because they're being paid peanuts for the jobs they do. So um, it's just unfortunate that the average Nigerian, the ordinary man on the streets is often uh, the victims of police extortion and brutality. So it's multifaceted. Yeah, I think also what is different about the NSARS movement and the Black Lives Matter movement in the US is in Nigeria, I think a lot of people are calling for the police to be funded. The, the idea is give our policemen more, you know, train them more, pay them better, give them better living conditions, give them more. Whereas in America, there's a massive move to defund the police. I think in Nigeria, there's more of a push for more funding for the police and more care for our police force. I would also suggest in reforming the Nigerian police, because uh, I don't think they'll be reinventing the wheel. I don't know if this can work, if we could do a copy and paste model. Because uh, if you remember, uh, the Georgian police used to be very corrupt uh, in the fall, in the aftermath of the fall of the former Soviet Union. The then president, Mikhail Shakashvili, almost sacked the entire police force. And then they had to go through, he got rid of the rogue officers. They needed to reapply and there was training. There are lots of uh, papers that have been published about police reform in, the, in, in Georgia and Eastern Europe. So the Nigerian police force might have to go through that sort of um, cleansing because the corruption is almost endemic. And there are those, I remember when I used to work on radio and you know, we'll talk about the Nigerian police. There are people that will call in and say, you know, if you do, if you increase their salary, if you give them more money, they wouldn't change. So we also look, need to look at the training process. How long do they train for? What's the quality of the training uh, they get? Do they realize that ordinary Nigerians are citizens and they have human rights, they should be respected and they should be treated with dignity? These are conversations uh, we need to have. Yeah. I think also in line with that, something that I found is I was watching the judicial commissions um, on the SARS and people were coming and giving their testimonies. And something that I found was that was really interesting was the lack of checks and maybe not interesting, but that was really kind of alarming was the lack of checks and balances that is in place. So often victims get in encounters with SARS and they, you know, they suffer torture or rape or things like this. And they take these matters to court and they end up getting a judgment compensation in some way. There was a man who spoke and he was given 10 million Naira compensation, but there's no way to exercise that. There's no way to exercise that court order. There's no one to be held accountable for it. And I feel like that's kind of a massive issue if there's a lack of accountability then the police can go on doing what they want to do and nothing will ever change 
Absolutely. And uh, the testimonies of people saying, you know, SARS officers will tell you that I will shoot you and nothing will happen. And that has happened. If you check out the website, nsars.com, a lot of people give their testimonies uh, about their experiences in the hands of SARS. And that impunity that you rightly mentioned, Tim, is, is one of the biggest problems. It's like a rogue, it's a license, it's the state armed robbery squad, state-sanctioned criminals in uniform that just go around uh, extorting young Nigerians. But because they know uh, that there's no, there are no consequences for their bad behavior, uh, this is what is happening. So for two weeks, when the protests happened, for 12 to 13 days, while the NSAS protests happened, not one single rogue SAS officer, not one has been charged to court, not one has resigned, not one person has uh, been arrested, not one of those SARS, in spite of all the evidence, in spite of all the testimonies that have been out. So that just tells you the level of impunity uh, that exists in our society here. And perhaps maybe that's why the NSARS movement has now um, merged into the hashtag and bad governance, right? Because the two are so intertwined. Absolutely. Could, could I just add a question for somebody who is more at uh, the outside of this? You were mentioning a commission of inquiry. That's probably a government commission. So the problem is well known to the government. But then there's a problem with the implementation and there might be um, reparations, but then uh, you you cannot execute those orders. Because I was wondering, I, I saw one um, reaction, I think it was the president of the House of Commons uh, in Nigeria, who basically said um, that he would not um, um, he would not go through with uh, the 2021 um, budget, budget of Nigeria if the victims of uh, violence were not compensated. But then even at that level, it would only be for compensation, but not for accountability within the police forces. Yeah, a lot of it is, um, Astrid, thanks for your question. Um, that was the Speaker of the Nigerian House of Representatives, the lower house, Mr. Bajabia Miller. He's also a member of the ruling party, and there's a huge trust deficit between the people and the government. So a lot of people will consider that lip service. So because the government has a way of making promises and never um, fulfilling those promises. Yes, um, in Mr. President's speech, the Lagos State government, uh, the Lagos State governor, uh, went to the president and um, you know presented the seven-point uh, agenda of the NSAS protesters that this is what they want. Uh, part of it was uh, you know accountability, justice, reparation, um, restitution uh, rather for crimes against you know against the people. And um, so the president gave a directive that state governors should form independent panels of inquiry. Uh, Lagos State um, started its own uh, earlier this week and, you know, testimonies are taken and notes are taken and then uh, there's a, there, there's the lawyers there and what have you. And the Lagos State panel of inquiry is also uh, televised. At the end of that inquiry, their, present, their findings will be presented uh, to the president and hopefully they will follow through on its recommendations and justice will be served. Yeah, I think this leads us into, well, kind of talking about how the Nigerian government has responded to these protests. And 
question. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, Tima. We have one question on, on YouTube. Um, a viewer is asking, does the police force target specific groups of people or are they just generally engaging in police brutality and race? So this is a question to you, Benga, probably. Sorry, um, I didn't get that question. Could you um, so if there are um, specific groups targeted or if it's just general violence? It's often flashy. It's often young Nigerians, but it's not always young Nigerians. It's just random as long as. So the only thing that immunes you, that, that grants you immunity from police brutality in Nigeria is if you're a member of the upper class, economic class and political class, because you would probably have a police escort, uh, a security detail. So they won't touch you because you're VIP. But the rest, I mean, other people are fair game. Uh, we had a, I had a retired colonel uh, give a testimony about his experience in the hands of SARS. And, you know, they were just, they were rude. They're not trained properly. So it's, it's bigger than that. It's not, so everyone is fair game. Is mostly, most of the incidents, uh, mo most of this people's encounter with SARS officers happen in the southern part of Nigeria and, and the north doesn't really experience um, SARS brutality, but the, of course they're still victims of the Nigerian police force uh, in general. So the only thing that amuses you from SARS targeting you is you better be very rich, you better have a recognizable face. If you're a celebrity, if you're a top government official, if you're a VIP, then yeah, you will likely not be harassed by SARS. Okay, um, so in terms of the government's response to the protests, right, a lot of reports and of course we all agree that the government has really responded negatively and there are definitely things that they could have done better, uh, but I would like us to talk about the things that happened on the 20th of October, um, what's now being called the, Le the Leki massacre. So Benga, can you talk us through kind of what happened on that day and how the government was involved in this? Okay, um, the protests had been going on for 12 consecutive days. I happened to be at the protest ground at least six times covering uh, the events for uh, New Central, my the TV station where I work. And I had never seen anything like that in Nigeria. It was well organized. Not a single tire was burnt. I was even telling uh, my colleagues that, you know, this has to be the gold standard uh, for protests because when in France, uh, the yellow vest in uh, George Floyd, the, the protests that happened, we've seen police uh, use um, tear gas, we've seen people riot, we've seen looting, uh, we've seen uh, water cannons. We had not seen any of that in 12 days. These young Nigerians organized, they provided food, there was water, there were ambulance services, there was a, a crowd crowdfunding and it was transparent. It was nothing like I've never seen before. So up until that point, they were, I mean, they were doing what was constitutionally uh, legal for them to do. Everybody has a right uh, to protest. And then on that Tuesday, 20th of October, the government announced the curfew at about noon, a four o'clock curfew. Lagos is a city of 22 million. How do you expect people to get back to their homes? They hadn't even stocked uh, up on supplies. How do you expect them to 
stock up in, in four hours. So there was an extension when the government realized, uh, you know, maybe four o'clock is too early. They extended to nine at about 7.30. We now know because the details are open. They denied it at first. Men of the Nigerian army came to the protest ground, the most peaceful protest ground. Because before then, let me just give you a background to that. Before then, there were, there were pockets of um, violence breaking out in parts of Lagos. A police station was burnt. Uh, policemen were lynched. There was a prison break uh, in uh, Benin City. That's about two, 300 kilometers away from Lagos. They did not send soldiers to those places where um, this incident that needed police presence and you know security operatives to handle. They didn't send them there. They sent them to the toll plaza, the gold standard of protest, where they've been peaceful, where they've been very organized, where there's been not a single incident of violence. The people were singing the national anthem. They were waving the Nigerian flag. And about 7.30, men of the Nigerian army came, opened fire, uh, some people died, and the crowd dispersed. So the aftermath of that was that, um, I mean, people, it was hashtag genocide was trending. Some people called it a massacre. The government, the state government denied that it sent forces there to, you know, to shoot at protesters. And then the army denied. The army said, you know, the videos were doctored, that they were, the army just put on the social media. It's verified, the Nigerian army's verified social media page that, you know, it, it's fake soldiers. And then as the days went by, the president addressed the country. He didn't even mention the Lekki incident. It was so aloof. Uh, there were veiled threats. He also uh, said the international community should uh, understand and get a clearer picture before they interfere uh, in domestic affairs of Nigerians. So, but as of today, what we know is the army has come out to say, you know, we've sent soldiers there, but they didn't, they, the instruction wasn't to kill. So I'm wondering, why do you even send them there before the expiration of the curfew? What was the rule of engagement? Uh, what were the rules of engagement and all of that? So we've seen a lot of uh, and this is why people protested. And this is why when the government, when the president said it's ended SARS and they changed the name to SWAT, uh, the people kept on protesting because there's a huge trust deficit mm. between the people and the government. And we've seen government in action uh, by their lies and then coming back and then, you know, th this back and forth. So that's and the I situation. Think, yeah, and I think also for people, it's difficult to believe that the army wasn't sent there to shoot and kill people because if people who don't know, Lekki Tollgate is like, has a massive kind of billboard thing on top of it and mm -hmm. there are lights everywhere. And before this happened, all the lights were switched off and there's images of CCTV cameras around the Tollgate being taken down. So it's kind of like, this was, it looks like it was premeditated. Like there was a preemptive plan to exactly. send the army there to do what they did. And we hope at the end of the day, for the sake of justice, that something uh, good comes out of this. But from the feelers we're getting, uh, it doesn't seem like it because the people Nigerians elected to represent them, I have no, they're disconnected from the reality on the ground. They think it's just a bunch of young people 
uh, costs and trouble. Uh, there was a live broadcast of the Lagos State House of Assembly deliberations. You had comments like, yeah, it's because of social media. It's because they were feeding the protesters. That's why it degenerated into all that violence, chaos and looting that we saw. Nobody talked about the root cause. Why are people protesting or addressing the reasons or talking about uh, police reform? So um, there are lots of angry uh, Nigerians on social media and they're, they're basically tired of the political class. Mm. Okay, so I think this leads us now to getting some insight from you, Astrid, on um, international criminal law and whether, you know, the things that you've heard could amount to crimes against humanity and what the role is of the international community, international institutions, and specifically the ICC in matters like this. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, there were quite strong international reactions uh, to what has happened, um, in particular the police violence um, was named explicitly, the killings, you have um, at least internationally, there was a lot of uh, media coverage uh, responses by the United Nations, by the African Union, by the European Union, but it's basically also of um, particular states. Uh, but basically, at this moment, it's a condemnation of the violence. And um, I think in your invitation, you, um, you also referred to a Twitter, that um, a tweet that was sent by the International Criminal Court, a statement by the prosecutor of the ICC, uh, Fatou Bensouda, that she's monitoring the situation um, in uh, Nigeria and that she uh, calls for uh, restraint and calm. So these statements are all at the very early stage of international response, which I think at least at this stage is probably accurate because um, um, in international law, you have the principle of non-intervention um, that um, is valid for the United Nations as an organization, but also for other states. Um, so it's still in the process of monitoring and seeing where this might um, might lead to. That doesn't mean that um, there was no violence going on or that human rights of Nigerians were not violated um, by the violent uh, shootings um, of uh, peaceful protesters. But that means that we are not yet at a stage where um, an international response is necessarily prompted. Mm -hmm. And that is a very general statement for international law and international relations. And that's even gets a little bit more restrictive when we talk about international criminal law and uh, the ICC. So um, from what I understand, what has uh, been going on, um, the current issues are um, is violence, police violence against the protesters. Um, we have, I'm not sure um, whether I, I got this accurately, but there's more than 50 persons that have been shot, if I understand correctly. Um, something in that um, numbers. Um, so one of the crimes that might be involved could be crimes against humanity. Certainly murder is one of the acts uh, that uh, falls within um, the definition of crimes against humanity. What we need in addition is a widespread or systematic attack against a civilian population in the context of which such shootings or murders um, are taking place. So since 
there have been various demonstrations in various parts of the country. One could argue that this, um, and, and there have been incidents in different uh, places, one might argue that this, this is getting close to a widespread um, attack against the civilian population. Um, with regard to systematic, one would need to see a little bit in more detail um, whether this really came um, bottom down as uh, an order. As an order, yeah. For instance, um, or whether there were plans to um, violently um, react to protests, or whether it was a um, single policeman on the ground that used excessive violence. Yeah? Um, but certainly with regard to widespread, if you have various locations, uh, and this is also going on over a certain period of time, um, as it was um, in, in this case, one could go in the direction um, of crimes against humanity. But maybe in this um, regard, I should bring an example from the practice of the International Criminal Court. Um, the ICC is currently looking into events in Ukraine um, in various um, areas of the country. And one would be the shootings um, at, at Maidan Square, where also protesters were being shot by the police. Yes. I think they had um, around 130 casualties, um, people that were um, murdered and shot. And um, there's still a discussion whether this is really enough um, as um, in terms of numbers. On the other side, Maidan was a very compact um, um, event. It was only a few days. Um, and now we are in Nigeria, we are facing two weeks with multiple occasions. Yeah? So we don't have, I cannot just say, well, this is clearly crimes against humanity. We are still in a situation where something uh, we might go in that direction. It could maybe already be argued by persons that are looking at the human rights aspects and want the broad application of the crime. Uh, there are also counter arguments against this. And I wouldn't, uh, we don't have a comparable uh, judgment of an international court or tribunal that would clearly say, well, from this point on, it is crimes against humanity. Now, things are being monitored. Okay. Sorry, Astrid, I would like to come in here. Uh, a lot of people have argued that, you know, the courts take their time and they, the response time uh, to incidents like this is slow, the Nigerians that have been calling for visa ban on the members of the ruling elite as a way of saying, you know, you can't get away with this level of impunity. There are international laws that uh, you violated when you sent soldiers to open uh, fire on innocent civilians that there should be consequences and we've seen uh, presidents of the international criminal court uh, we've seen uh, people sentenced after um, we had Laurent Gbagbo we had John Bosco uh, and Katanga and and other people that have been Slovodan Milosevic that have been held in the Hague this comes after they've killed people for a long time can't something, can't there be a rapid intervention uh, mechanism or something just to, you know, to put fear in the hand, in the, in, in the minds of these leaders that you, you can't go on with this. What often happens and what we see is all the violence happens and then the wheels of justice grind slowing. Yeah, some of them are arrested and charged. Yeah. That's uh, certainly true. So the IC, um, international community is not um, acting rapidly 
um, usually um, in terms of strong enforcement. Um, so I, when I read the statements that were being um, issued, I already thought these are very clear, they use a very clear language, it's very clear not only saying that um, there was violence, but strongly also condemning the violence um, that, um, and partly also blaming um, uh, the military um, and officials uh, for, that, for those um, uh, violations of human rights. There is no rapid response mechanism, at least uh, from, from a criminal law point of view. Um, the statement by the prosecutor is, and I, I don't know whether I should uh, defer much from that, but uh, in the last week or in the last weeks, there have been several press releases from the International Criminal Court on uh, pre-election violence, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, um, Guinea, um, for instance. Um, there was no official press release with regards to Nigeria. So I'm wondering, um, are we already in a time where a tweet corresponds to an official press release or, or not yet? So I don't know whether there's still a level in between a tweet and an official press release. I don't know, but maybe it's, it's the same. So certainly we have this statement. Um, it's in the line of what we sometimes call the deterrent effect of uh, international criminal law and the International Criminal Court, meaning that we do have a pre-existing um, organization. Nigeria is a state party to the ICC. Um, they have been actually one of the founding um, uh, states. Uh, they were one of the 60 states um, that ratified the statute uh, necessary to have the statute coming in, uh, enter, entering into force. Um, so the ICC would certainly have jurisdiction um, over this, uh, these events. Um, but we are not even yet in the very early stage of talking about preliminary examinations. Yeah? It's still the language of monitoring um, and also seeing what happens. And that's certainly, I mean, I am a scholar in international criminal law and I think it's a uh, a very re relevant tool um, uh, in the international um, uh, rule-based order. But what we need to admit is that international criminal law always comes after the events, um, yes. particularly international criminal law, because we do need a certain threshold. Um, we can't go after every murder that occurs. This is not the aim and also of international criminal law and also the definitions are drafted in a way that you cannot apply uh, them to any incidents. So we already need a certain level of violence before international criminal law comes into place. So that's unfortunate, but uh, with regard to international criminal law, um, that's uh, just a fact. Also the idea of criminal law being the ultima ratio coming only when no other means uh, are available. But certainly we have other um, institutions, organs of the United Nations, for instance, um, treaty bodies um, that also deal with human rights violations that may not amount to crimes or crimes against. Now, crimes. Astrid, who brings the cases forward uh, to the International Criminal Court? Uh, are petitions sent? How how does it work? Yes. So there are three possibilities how a situation um, can go to the International Criminal Court. One would be a referral by the Security Council. That's, I think, um, at the current point in time, um, globally, politically, um, rather um, 
not really an option um, with um, the veto powers in the Security Council and at least one permanent member not being very fond of the activities um, of the International Criminal Court. Um, we could have a state referral that could mean that either Nigeria itself believes that they cannot cope um, with this uh, violence um, and provide accountability and they could ask um, the International Criminal Court to intervene. It would be a, a self-referral. We had had several self-referrals in the context um, of African situation, Uganda, the DRC, um, Central African Republic. Um, it could also be other states that refer the situation um, to the International Criminal Court. Um, this is uh, something that has not been used uh, very frequently um, in the past. It's always a very a lot of polit political um, will that a country needs to bring up to kind of blame another country for violations. Um, it had, has recently been done with regards to the situation in Venezuela, where other um, South American countries also, uh, in combination with uh, Canada, refer the situation. Um, the most likely, I assume, in the context of Nigeria, would be a proprio moto investigation of the prosecutor. Um, the prosecutor, we call it... Um, uh, communications, so receives she receives information that uh, possibly alleged crimes um, uh, that fall within the jurisdiction of the court have been committed. In the context of Nigeria, this has already been done. Um, she has uh, she says uh, that she had already um, received several communications, um, and then it is the in the, within the power of the prosecutor to review this information, see how serious it is, and uh, decide whether um, to go on with an investigation. Although this process of coming to an investigation has been very much formalized at the International Criminal Court, um, it's uh, being put in the context of what is called a preliminary examination. And this is not just reviewing some evidence because the bar, the standard of proof is not very high to open an investigation. And uh, the, she would need to ask the pretrial chamber, there's kind of a judicial balance, uh, checks and balance here um, of the independence of the prosecutor. Um, so the level is not so high, but um, nevertheless, the examination is very thorough. So she would look into the jurisdiction, whether crimes within the jurisdiction of the court have been um, uh, committed, whether all the other jurisdictional elements um, would be there, which would not be a problem with regard to Nigeria because it is, it is a state party. And then she would also need to examine the question of admissibility. Um, and that means we have two prongs of admissibility. One would be the question whether Nigeria is actually investigating uh, those cases that would be the context of complementarity or whether they're in the process of investigating uh, cases. So that's why I was also asking with regard to the investigation commissions, um, because what we are usually would be looking for would be criminal investigations and criminal um, uh, trials. Um, but there is some... Um, um, how do you, how would you say, um, some leeway that the prosecutor has, even under the Rome Statute, um, whether certain investigations might be enough. Um, if you think back of South Africa, um, the Truth Commission. Truth Reconciliation Commission. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so they were not judicial proceedings, but at least there was the threat 
if um, um, a perpetrator would not tell the whole truth, um, he could afterwards be tried before a criminal court. So that was um, this was of course before the times of the criminal uh, of the ICC. But this was sometimes argued that this might be enough. This should be accepted um, as a country's way to deal even with mass atrocities. But um, just a truth commission that just establishes what has, has happened uh, might not be enough. Um, and then it's the question of the prosecutor, whether she thinks uh, this is um, uh, enough in terms of the Rome Statute or whether uh, in her um, independence, she decides um, to maybe not proceed immediately to see what is coming out of this process. Um, and the other prong that we have with regard to admissibility is the one of gravity, um, which sounds strange at first sight, because if we establish an international criminal court for the most serious crimes of concern to the international community as a whole, one wonders why there's any gravity issues with any of the crimes uh, that falls within the jurisdiction of the court. Um, but so, so far, gravity has been more seen as um, something, well, usually it's there if not special circumstances um, would suggest that a situation is not grave enough. But with... Um, when you, sorry, to, sorry to interrupt you. When you talk about gravity, is it in the numbers of casualty or the means at which the violence was carried out? It's or is not, it the nature of the crime? Like, if it's a crime yeah. against humanity, is it... it can't really be the nature of the crime because the nature of the crime is per se grave. Okay. Yeah. Now we only have grave crimes there. But um, for instance, with regard to war crimes, we have a huge list of war crimes that uh, goes from murdering to um, declaring that no quarter can be given. That's just a declaration. Yeah. So, hospitals. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, a level of um, of gravity maybe among some of the crimes. But here we are talking about murder. Um, so the crime as such, I think um, there's no question um, of the gravity. So um, it's not only the numbers. Um, it has been a number play for a very long time. But that doesn't mean that if the numbers are not, are not so high, that the intensity, maybe the people that are involved. Um, for me, it's always also one of the aspects would be if a state is involved, state officials, that um, should add to the gravity um, of the crime because then it's usually systematic. If it's a systemic violence, this also adds. So we also have intensity that amounts to the question of gravity. Okay, I have a question. In terms of the African Union and its role in this, does the International Criminal Court, for example, international institutions, do they first wait to see what the regional body does and then act on that? Or are they completely acting independently of each other? Yeah, we don't yet have a criminal jurisdiction of the African Union. There's a draft, uh, the so-called Malabo Protocol, that would add a criminal chamber to the African Court um, of Justice and uh, uh, Human Rights. But I think, if I remember correctly, not one state has yet um, I think um, 11, ratified. Sorry? 11 have ratified so far. Who? 11 states have ratified so far. No, not, not the protocol. Um, that adds the criminal chamber because we had uh, several staging stages of uh, in, um, of building this court the merger and then later on the Malabo protocol which was ratified um, by a few states but then the the, the Malabo protocol was revised again to okay. um, to add immunity provisions and okay. that last um, revision has not yet been um, ratified so. We, at the moment we don't have any conflict or parallel um, uh, 
trade so with regard to the African Union, but the ICC is based on the principle of complementarity, um, and that means that states should be the first um, to prosecute those crimes. Uh, it's the primary responsibility of, uh, the responsibility of states. Yeah? So whenever an, uh, something is, would be going on in Nigeria, the ICC would need to see if it's against the same person that the ICC is interested in prosecuted, prosecuting, then the national trials would be pre uh, prevailing. Okay. I think it's also important to note, because Benga, you talked about intervention and if international institutions can intervene. Um, the African Union in its charter, there is a provision that gives the assembly the right to decide when to intervene in matters of genocide, crimes against humanity, things like this. But the assembly, as we know, is comprised of heads of states, African states or their representatives. So I think often it becomes a political question as well of when to intervene and when not to intervene. At least yeah, and it's, it's, it's like an old boys club. They would hardly go against one of those. So it's, it's just, yeah, <laughs> it yeah. would be very generous of them to uh, come together and say, let's intervene this, this other country, because they're all guilty. A lot of them are guilty of the same crimes. Hmm. And the stakes here are very high because we're talking about military intervention, no? yes. this provision of the Charter of the African Union. Yes. So, oh, sorry. Yes. Uh, is there any way for an individual to um, petition a court or an institution on an international level in this? Because, like, my first instinct when I when I read this was uh, in Europe there would be the European Court of Human Rights who could be petitioned by any citizen um, and then fines could be imposed on the state rather than uh, individual rulers uh, under international criminal law. Now, to my understanding for the, uh, for the African Court on, on Human and People's Rights, this is different. So there isn't a, a mechanism for individual motions. Yeah, my understanding is that when it comes to the African Court of Human and People's Rights, it either has to be an NGO or some sort of organization that petitions. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure if individuals have the ability to do that. Astrid, are you aware of this? Yeah, I'm not completely sure. I had the impression there was something like an individual complaint uh, mechanism in a protocol, but um, not many states have ratified it, but I could be mistaken, I could mix it up with uh, NGOs um, acting um, for an individual. So I'm not completely sure, I'm sorry. But in the case of Europe, where individuals can, you know, take up, can uh, make a case against a state, how does the court deal with it? Because if you do it in Africa, you'll be inundated with cases on a daily basis and it might overwhelm the system. So how does the European Court of Justice, uh, how have they been able to handle that um, problem, mm. if I may use that word. So yeah. th that would be the regional um, human rights uh, protection system with the European Court of Human Rights um, at, the, at uh, its top. Um, well, there are some protection against um, a high case lo load. Um, it's, um, for instance, that, of course, uh, first of all, the national instances 
um, must have been used. There must be a final uh, judgment. Um, even um, you, you need to go to our constitutional court, for instance, um, if possible. Um, and only then um, a, a case uh, could be um, ad admissible. Um, they've also um, instituted other uh, safeguards. For instance, we had um, very similar um, we had very similar applications from certain states, for instance, um, conditions in prisons, um, the length of judicial proceedings, um, and uh, there, there would be more restrictive in the selection of cases where they had already established um, that a state had violated um, uh, the Human Rights Convention with that uh, regard. So there's an increasing amount of cases also at uh, the European system. Um, the judges have tried to be dealing with that and so far i think it's working right. well thanks astrid for giving us insight onto the legal aspect um i think the final point that we really wanted to talk about was the impact of this movement on africa at large so right now we see that the nsars movement is not the only youth-led social decentralized movement that's taking place on the continent we have movements in south africa in ethiopia in cameroon um, we have movements in congo like bengal was saying earlier on so this this is a much bigger issue than SARS and Nigeria. So, I mean, Benga, what do you think about the impact of these youth-led movements in Africa? And are we at the point of a new dawn, as some would say? Yes, we are absolutely at the point of a new dawn. Uh, there's a huge political awakening in Nigeria. And the big question is, can it be sustained uh, until 2023, where this can be translated into political power because uh, but we've seen something unprecedented and there's the hashtag Congo is bleeding the issues in Cameroon in Namibia in South Africa and different parts of the uh, continent let's not forget that Africa is the youngest continent uh, in the world they're quite the, there's a huge amount of young people now and this uh, let me speak for Nigeria now that we have a generation that knows that look uh, we're armed with the tools of social media. Uh, you can bully us. We're educated. We're tech savvy. Uh, we would hold government accountable. It's a new awakening. It's a new. Uh, uh, it's a new awakening, and I believe it's going to translate into better accountability and improve the quality of, of governance uh, in general. Because uh, we've seen what they can do, and it's organic. It's, it wasn't like an individual-led protest, as opposed to, in the past, we always used to see the Nigerian Labour Congress lead protests against the increase in pump fuel of price. And then in, at three o'clock in the morning, after negotiations with the government, they call off the strike, and that's it. Everybody dissipates. That's the end. But we saw a leaderless movement. It was almost like a blockchain. It was organic, and um, I think that's what sustained it. Uh, for that long and you can't compromise any leader the Nigerian you said look these are our demands make those demands and when we see that you're really working uh, towards changing the situation or you've addressed our concerns uh, we would leave the streets so it's if I was the government uh, rather than trying to muzzle them more because we have a huge problem I mean it needs to be of national security concern because we saw the looting and the violence that took place after after that i mean we're still feeling uh, the after 
uh, aftershocks of that. There's a huge problem with unemployment. They need to look at it. And this is for national security and also uh, regional security issues. Because if Nigeria implodes, I don't think the whole of West Africa will be able to handle uh, the fallout, the blowback uh, from that in terms of refugees and all. And uh, Nigeria is the engine room of Africa. So it's important for Nigeria to work in order for Africa uh, to progress. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think also the diaspora, those of us Nigerians living outside of the continent or outside of the country, I feel like the reason that this movement has blown up so much and become so international is because of the other protests that happened in London and because of the protests that happened in South Africa and other part, and in the US and in other parts of the world. So I think it's, it's time for us as a collective, as an African collective to understand that we do have strength in numbers. And those of us outside Absolutely. of the continent need to care about what's going on at home. And we need to use our influence in the spaces that we're in to make sure that African voices are heard all over the world. Just to piggyback on your point about the Nigerian diaspora, the remittance from the Nigerian diaspora was $19 billion last year. They're a huge number. And they're in different parts of the world. And they also helped governize uh, and amplify the NSARS uh, movement. So uh, they, they, they put the government on notice. I mean, you can gag people in Nigeria if you shut down the social media space in Nigeria. It doesn't mean that uh, the army of Nigerians outside will not talk. And their voice is very important too, because they're they are Nigerians. They just happen to be outside. So it's, it's changed the dynamics and we have a more democratized uh, space for speaking. Traditional media in the past would not. Even the broadcast regulators, I forgot to add this, NBC, find a couple of stations because they did what they are meant to do constitutionally, report on issues of national importance. They sent a secular to stations saying, you know, your reporting shouldn't embarrass the government and this. And the national broadcaster was not, didn't even pay so much attention to what was going on on the ground. So we also need to... Oh, I think we've lost Benga. Yeah. Okay. Well, that essentially... Can Ashley... I have a word? Yes, of course. <laughs> no, just um, from, from an international law point of view, that uh, if change occurs and we have um, a movement that is um, cross-African countries for better government, democracy, better inclusion of um, all parts of the population that um, wish uh, that this might be um, very well observed, particularly reaction of governments in place, um, um, monitored by the international community and also that um, there will be uh, strong um, statements uh, and uh, if, if if um, such protests are continued to be met with violence. And um, hopefully not, but uh, if yes, uh, that uh, we do have uh, strong international reactions to that. Yes, I agree. I mean, we've seen it in the US, for example, with Joe Biden coming forward and making a statement and MPs in parliament in the UK. And I feel like that has a lot to do with the diaspora coming together and really demanding that our representatives outside of Nigeria hold our governments accountable. Yeah, so we wanted to end off with kind of letting people know what they can do moving forward, where they can donate and things that they can do to help the movement. So you can donate to the NSARS response, which is kind of a medical fund that's crowdfunding and collecting money for people who were hurt during the 
20th of October, Lekki Massacre. There's also a legal aid network that you can um, donate to. And there's a memorial fund for people who lost their lives during the massacre. So we'll try to include some of the links in the description at the end of the live video. And yeah, at the end of the day, we think it's important to continue to talk about things that are going on outside even if they're outside of our borders, we think it's important to continue to amplify voices and to hold governments accountable where they need to be held accountable. Yeah, and we hope that we could have added to, to this today uh, with this podcast. Um, thank you, Astrid. Thank you also, Benga, who uh, now apparently lost the connection, um, for joining us and for discussing this us, with us uh, for this really, really, really interesting episode and, and giving us this input. Uh, also, thank you to all of our viewers and our listeners for joining us here, either live or viewing this afterwards. Uh, we will be back with a um, new episode uh, in our normal, usual standard format and, and setting uh, and topics in two weeks, uh, where we'll be where we're also very excited now uh, about this um, about our new topic. Uh, thank you again for joining us and goodbye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ars Equi podcast. Check out our other podcast, Ars Boni, brought to you by the Department of Innovation and Digitalization in Law. Please be sure to like, share, subscribe and leave your comments down below. Thank you again and join us next time on the Ars Equi podcast.